Welcome to the Keep Birth Wild podcast. My name is Indy and through this series I'll be speaking to women who plan to birth their babies at home. Join me to hear home birth mothers sharing their stories of pregnancy, birth and postpartum. In today's episode, I interview Charlotte about the births of her two children, Kyan and Sophia. Kyan was actually born in Cambodia, so Charlotte takes us right through his pregnancy and birth at an NGO maternity clinic. The conditions in the clinic where she ended up birthing were very poor, and there was um, almost no support at all offered during labour until delivery. Kyan's birth was traumatic for Charlotte, and she was sure after that that she would never have any more children. However, six years later, after we moved back to Australia, she was shocked to find out that she was pregnant again and shares beautifully about the healing process of that pregnancy and how she went on to have a beautiful outdoor home birth with Sophia. This episode is a little bit longer than usual just because we do cover um, quite a bit about the birth in Cambodia and the, yeah, the care she received there. But I really loved hearing her birth stories and she has a unique spiritual perspective and weaves a beautiful story. So settle down somewhere comfy, grab a cuppa and enjoy. Hi, Charlotte. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. How are you? Oh, I'm great. And it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Would you like to start by sharing a little bit about yourself and um, where you're living, maybe a little bit about that <laughs> beautiful surroundings it sounds like you're in outdoors and who's in your family? Yeah, sure. So I, I live in the Numanbar Valley, which is in southeast Queensland, just about five minutes from the New South Wales border. And it's absolute paradise. It's, yeah, it's heaven. Um, I've lived here for two and a half years now um, and I live in an intentional community of around uh, 25, 30 people, including lots and lots of kids. Yeah, so who's in my family? I There's me, of course, and then there's my son, Kyan, who's six years old. Um, he's half Cambodian. He was born in Siem Reap in Cambodia and when he was around three and a half we moved back to Australia um, and then straight out here to visit a friend on this property and we never left. Uh, there's Sophia who's five and a half months old and she was born here on the land which is pretty special and there's my partner Chris and his three boys to a previous relationship and they're um, seven nine and 11. So between us, we have five kids, four sons and a daughter. So we're really happy that we've got 55 acres to play on because it's quite a lot to handle. Oh, wow. That sounds so beautiful. And Sophia's just asleep in your arms at the moment, isn't she? She is. She's just like comfort nursing away, listening to the frogs. So gorgeous. Um, so we might just start with your first birth, um, and yeah, I didn't, I wasn't aware that he was born in Cambodia, but yeah, how did that pregnancy come about, and how were you feeling when you found out? So I was only 23 years old when I fell pregnant with Kyan, and um, I'd been with his father, who's a, a Cambodian man, for about 18 months um, at that stage. Um, we were living in Siem Reap, and I don't know what possessed me. I just was, I just wanted a baby. I think our relationship, I was young, and our relationship was, in hindsight, not completely healthy. 
definitely not a conscious relationship. It's just a reflection of where I was at within myself at the time. And I think I thought that, you know, a baby would, like, bring us closer. And it did <laughs> happen. It brought me closer to myself. It definitely, my, my son was the medicine of learning how strong I was and how much I could I could love myself if I just allowed myself to. It was, it was a process of learning to love my son and through that learning to love myself. Um, mm -hmm. So that pregnancy, yeah, that pregnancy was challenging. I was sick a lot, um, like as in nauseous and throwing up a lot for the entire pregnancy. And I worked full-time as an English teacher at a primary school up until about three days before he was born, um, I was the breadwinner. So wow. I felt like it was really, yeah, it was really important for me to work, 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 even though I wasn't enjoying it towards the end at all. Um, yeah. And just going back a little bit, um, what sort of care was available for you in Cambodia? And, um, yeah, what did your antenatal care look like there? It was pretty basic. Definitely not what I received in Australia for my second pregnancy. There, um, we first found out that I was pregnant from um, an early scan. There are these little scan um, places all over the, the shop and you walk in and you pay like 7 or $8 to some like dodgy, uncalibrated machine and <laughs> they sit you down. And I was sure I was pregnant and the tests were coming up negative and I was telling my partner and he didn't quite really I wouldn't say that he didn't believe me but I think he thought you know I was so like into this idea of having a baby that perhaps there was like some of the symptoms were psychosomatic or something <laughs> so it was confirmed via this scan and then I was really confused about what I was supposed to do from that point I spoke the language pretty well at that time um, well enough but not to the depth that I obviously learnt to, you know, in the coming years after my son was born. So I was confused about what to do and my husband or my fiancé, sorry, he asked a few people in the village we were living in and they sort of said, oh, yeah, you can go to a private clinic and you'll pay, I think it was around $90 per consultation and you'll have to commit to going like as many times as they say. So that was going to work out to be thousands of dollars. And although I was earning relatively good money in comparison to a local teacher, it was still a Cambodian salary. So that was much too much money for us to commit to. So the other option was a free program that had been set up by a, a Dutch man many years ago. And I'm got his name now, Richard Beatner, I believe his name was. He's famous in Cambodia for setting up this free maternity birth sort of clinics and hospitals um, in the country and the main one being in Siem Reap where we, where we lived. But because it was the only one for many, many kilometres around, you'd have to leave your home to get there. It was about a half an hour journey from our village at around 4 o'clock in the morning, so it was still dark, on motorcycle and hope that there was some little um, rice, fried rice place open on the side of the road to buy breakfast and you'd get there and there'd be hordes and hordes of pregnant women there and you'd take a little paper number ticket 
and then you'd go and find a place outside, hopefully under a tree if it wasn't already too crowded, and you'd sit and wait there until they opened their doors at 8 o'clock. And sometimes I'd get there as early as I could and my ticket number would be like 246 or something. Um, so it was a long wait. And then when you got in, you were sort of herded around like cattle in groups of around 60 to 80 women at a time. Um, and you're just referred to by a number because it was too hard for them to be calling out people's names and birth dates and things. So you had to listen really carefully for your number. And if you were to like mishear it or just miss the number altogether because you were at the bathroom or in a conversation, then that was it. You lost your turn and you'd have to return the next day. Wow. Um, yeah, so there was absolutely no bedside manner or like there was – you didn't develop a relationship with anyone, any rapport with with anyone at all. If you had concerns about things, you could then step off to the side and a professional, someone in a white coat, would come and ask you and you'd have to like declare what that was in front of everyone. So there was no privacy either. And because it was a, a an NGO, a non-government organisation, and they ran on funds and donations from the rest of the world, the staff were paid like pretty poorly. So a lot of them were there just for their training to gain experience. So they, there was a little bit of like resentment because they weren't being paid, say, as much as the nurses at the private hospitals um, where the paying, paying patients were. So they could be quite rude and harsh. Well, so this is the only – was this the only other option for – receiving any kind of maternity care besides the private system? That I knew about at the time, yeah. Yeah, and so, yeah. you know, the majority of women would then just be, you know, just birthing at home in their villages or...? No, they unfortunately not. <laughs> um, the NGOs and the Christians did a really good job in the ni 1990s and 2000s of going into the villages and sort of... Um, scaring the women to go to the clinics to declare their pregnancies to the clinics turn up for the prenatal care which was pretty adequate but also banning the midwives from practicing in the villages and banning them from sharing their traditional wisdom of using like herbs and all these sort of traditional practices to to ease any discomforts during pregnancy and also just to you know bring on labor and keep progress and all that sort of stuff happening. So, yeah, it was unfortunate that a lot of Cambodian women that were pregnant at the same time as me were really indoctrinated into this belief that, like, the hospital was the only way to do it. Otherwise, you would birth, a, you know, a, a sick, poorly baby or perhaps not a, a living, breathing child at all. Yeah, that was the that was the mindset of the majority of women. So in just one generation, it changed from people being, women being at home um, with their family and with a midwife or several midwives to turning up to a clinic, even if that meant driving for hours and hours in a tuk-tuk or on a motorcycle in labour to get there and then having to wait in these queues. Um, wow, that sounds yeah, so challenging and so challenging as well for you trying to navigate your way through that. Yeah, you're sort of speaking a little bit about the mindset of the other women that, that, that are there. Did you have from your family and from your life back in Australia, yeah, what was your perspective on birth and how were you feeling about your capability of birthing your baby? Um, I was a 
scared. I was a bit scared. Then, of course, my family in Australia were like, you're mad, you should come home. But it was the same sort of um, limitation that I, that I felt, like the obstacle of, well, my, you know, my partner's not going to be able to be there. He won't be able to get a visa in time. He doesn't have documentation to support all of that sort of stuff um, to be here. But I was just so fixated on this idea that my partner should, should be there. Mm. Um, that I really want him to be there and I don't ever even think that I sat down and said like did you really want to be there is that really important to you (laughs) I just knew what I wanted so yeah approaching birth at the time I was you know much less conscious than than I consider myself to be now and I was really afraid of it I was afraid of like how much it was going to hurt you know my mum had shared um, her birth with me so many times as my dad had over the years and it was always like it's excruciating and you know it was like 27 hours of just like hell and I'm so glad when it was over and when your sister was born I got them to load me up with all the drugs I'd never do it like natural again all that sort of (laughs) that perspective Mm. yeah Um, so for me birth was like at that time I perceived birth to be like just something you had to do to get this cute little baby into your arms um, yeah, yeah um, which it sounds crazy to say that now because I feel like I'm almost talking about the perspective of someone that I've never even met in my life, but it was me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it, I guess it takes that experience to realise, yeah, to awaken you to how different it can be. Yes. Mm. And so, yeah, just going on with the rest of your pregnancy, how were you feeling as you approached the end of your pregnancy and did you have any health issues come up? Um, nothing too extreme, really. I was... I was like sick, physically ill <laughs> a lot. I always am when I'm pregnant. It's just how I do it apparently. But yeah, so towards the end, all the normal sort of stuff, I was uncomfortable. I was getting quite emotional and miserable and fed up towards the end. But I, I honestly even still today see that as a healthy process of approaching a transition. You know, you have to get to the point where you're so uncomfortable like the snake ready to shed its skin it's not just slithering and chilling about and then it slides out of its skin it's got to get to the point where it's so uncomfortable that it contorts its body into all the kinds of shapes it needs to in order to like you know release shed and move into the new transition so I don't necessarily you know see it as an awful thing but I was pretty miserable to be around (laughs) towards the end I was exhausted because I was still working Um, my mum had flown over from Australia to Siem Reap to be with me for the birth and she'd been I think she was there for two weeks that was the plan she was there for two weeks and we're already six days into her stay and I get myself into a tiz because you know there's no signs of any baby and I'm so worried that you know another week's going to go by and I'm not going to have a baby and my mum's going to have to fly home and I won't have her there so I was getting into a, a bit of an emotional funk Um, for a time there so I wasn't totally sure on my my guest date either on my due date because technology there is like pretty shabby and because of the prenatal care that I was receiving I wasn't totally sure when when my my son was to arrive but it was somewhere around the end of March or early April Um, of 2014 so on the 28th of March I woke up really early in the morning 
I was really emotional. I was crying a lot. I was saying to my mom, it's never going to happen. I'm never going to have a baby. You're going to go home. And so she said, why don't we go to the, the place that you plan to birth at, which was not the same um, clinic or hospital that I had been going for my prenatal care. Once she had arrived, she said to me, look, I'm happy to like help financially. Let's find somewhere that's just a, a one st- at least one step up from where you've been getting care because that place doesn't sound like they're going to support you to have even like a snippet of the birth that you would like, which was I was hoping to have um, a non-medicated sort of intervention-free free birth. So we went to a place called – that. In Cambodia, they call it the Korean hospital, I think because the Koreans donated money to have it built. So I went to this Korean hospital. We met some of the nurses and midwives there. They were far more pleasant than where I'd been getting prenatal care. And I spoke to them and sort of said, is there anything you can do? You know, I want to have my baby today. And they sort of laughed (laughs) at me. (laughs) And I was like, no, but really, I'm really miserable. And this is my predicament. And they said, oh, we can do... And they told me what it was in Cambodia and I didn't understand what it was and I was like, whatever, I just agreed to it. It turns out it was a stretch and sweep. So I went into the little room and I had this dreadful <laughs> procedure done. I don't know if it's that dreadful for anybody else, but it definitely was not comfortable for me. And I looked at the clock and it was like staring into this clock to try and take me away from that experience and it was five past nine in the morning. And the woman finished and she said to me as she's like snapping off her glove and throwing it in the bin, she said, look, I don't know if it's going to do anything. I can't tell how close you are. But if it is going to do anything, it will happen, you know, in the next 12 to 24 hours. And if you go past 24 hours, then it's too early, just going to have to wait. So I went home with my mum and my partner and oh, I went and got my hair washed <laughs> at the mm-hmm. salon. And a couple of hours later, I felt a little pang. And, and s- sorry to interrupt you. Were you then yeah, planning to go back to that same place um, again once you were in labour or were you going to sort of go back into the care of um, the people running the antenatal clinic? I was going to go back to that place that I had the stretch and sweep. That's what I decided. They'd said to me that there was a VIP room and it cost $80 a night, which seemed affordable. Um, and once you have your baby, you get VIP room and we take care of you and it all sounded so lovely. So that's what the plan was. Um, so a couple of hours after that procedure, I did, um, begin labor and my first real contraction, I burst into tears and said to my mom, I'm not ready (laughs) after, after days of, (laughs) of saying, I don't want to be pregnant anymore. And I just want it to be over. I just burst into tears and said, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I, (laughs) make it stop and I could see the look of dread on her face like oh my gosh what are we in for so yeah we made our way back to that hospital or clinic I'm going to call it it's not quite a hospital and that particular wing was only for birth and babies oh my baby's just woken up and ripped the the headphone cord out sorry oh that's all right (laughs) (laughs) sorry love oh hello there Hi. You look tired. You gonna go back to sleep? I think you should. Um. All right. I'm back. Yeah. So it's one o'clock in the afternoon. And can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear. It's one o'clock in the afternoon, and we start making our way to this 
birth centre type clinic at the Korean hospital. And we stopped at our favourite restaurant on the way and uh, attempted to order food and eat, but I was finding labour really, really uncomfortable and I didn't like the fact that there were many other patrons around that seemed to be really perturbed by what was going on. Um, this restaurant was only across the road from, from the clinic. So we get there and they walk us to this enormous room that's full of around 20 beds with no mattresses, just the like metal metal bed frames. And there's two other women in this room. It's open plan. There's no curtains or anything. Fluoro lights and a clock on the wall and a tiny window at the far side. And they used to say, oh, this is where you'll labour. It's like, uh, wait, what? What about the VIP room? Said, oh, no, no, you only get the VIP room once you've already had the baby. It's like, right, okay. Um, and they said, so when the baby's head comes, you, you call out to us and we'll come. It's like, right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we asked, like, which bed? And they're like, that's up to you. You can choose whatever bed you want. So just like I do when I enter a restaurant, I choose, like, the table that's the furthest away <laughs> from all yeah. the people in the far corner. Um and we start to set up and I just like, I don't feel right about it, but I sort of feel like, okay, well, it's a bit too late now to change plans, so we'll just have to go along with this. So there's, like I said, there's no mattress on the bed. Um, so my partner asked one of the, the cleaners that were cleaning the room because the staff was sort of made it clear that, like, unless there's something wrong or the baby's head is crowning, then, like, we're not here to help you sort of thing. You, your family's got to do that for you. So we asked the cleaner and she said, oh, yeah, you've got to go to the little corner store underneath the, the clinic and they sell everything that you'll need. So he went down <laughs> there and he got, like, the little, you know, bucket for me to, like, wee and poo and vomit in and a bunch of food and some water and a little roll-out mattress thing. I had a yoga ball and I had a, a picnic basket, actually. That's the best thing I could find. Um, at the market, a picnic basket that was filled with, like, baby's clothes and comfy jammies and stuff for me and all the little, like, luxury things that I thought that I might want or need in labour. But he got, yeah, the comfy stuff that I hadn't thought of, like a pillow and <laughs> mattress and blankets. So labour progresses and it progresses and I'm finding it really uncomfortable. I definitely was not prepared at all. I hadn't... Um, yeah, I hadn't really prepared myself to manage. To manage, I, I would call it pain in through that labour. For my, mm. I guess you had your mum there as well, who you know perhaps wouldn't have really had much insight into ways to manage that the contractions and things as well, and had her own sort of story of fear and. Um, Absolutely, yeah. And she's in a foreign country as well, and it's much more foreign to her than it is to me. Um, she doesn't speak a word of the language um, and she's feeling really anxious about everything. She's feeling anxious about the fact that there doesn't seem to be any professionals around and for her that was when she suggested that we try a different place to, to give birth, she was, you know, hoping that they would have some professionalism there, that she'd feel sort of backed up. Um, so, yeah, she was really anxious and even though she never said that out loud, I, I could feel that energetically that I didn't really have a support or a backbone. Um, 
yeah, so labour was really challenging um, and at some point my partner found it too too hard to deal with. Um, so he he left on an errand and then didn't he didn't come back for a long time. I couldn't tell you how long because I was you know in the the throes of labour, but it was a really long time. And each time I would come through um, a surge, I would ask for him, and no one could really give me any answers about where he was. No one, meaning my mum or the other women in the room. And as my labour's progressing, night is closing in, so. The other women that were in the room, I think that they were there waiting to be induced or something because they weren't in active labour at all. Um, so their husbands and mothers and mothers-in-law and their children are all coming in and setting up their, like, you know, picnic blankets and things on the floor <laughs> to eat food and to sleep because they're all bunkered down for the night. So there was a lot more people watching me in that space and I was feeling really witnessed. Um and really disturbed by by that as well, um, flicking between like having being very angry <laughs> that people were watching me, and I felt like I was being judged or something um, by them, but also feeling like a lot of um, sadness that they were, especially the young children, like having to experience this. Um, is the wind is the wind disturbing the? Yeah, it is just starting to get quite noisy. Okay, I'm going to go back inside then. Oh, it's so warm in here. That <laughs> yeah, that must be nice. Go outside. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, sounded, it sounded really beautiful. I was enjoying listening to the frogs in the background. <laughs> yeah, they're so gorgeous. But, yeah, yeah. that southerly is just too brutal. Yeah, so I'm swinging between, you know, sadness and anger in that in that experience. Um it's nighttime now. I'm convinced that I'm never, ever, ever going to have this this baby ever. And at one point I got quite firm and I, I demanded that one of the nurses check me to see um, how far progressed I was. And I was convinced at this point that I must be, you know, somewhere toward 10, like let's say I'm um, seven centimetres or something like this, even though I also believe that I'm never, ever going to have this baby. And she checks me and she says in Khmer, which means two, and that was mm. it. That was, I was just devastated. Like I just crumbled at that point and there wasn't really any like building me back up from that point. Um, and my mum tried to her best, but, you know, she was also like, exhausted too because she's like what what we've been here for hours and hours and hours and it seemed like you know quite intense and here we are at a two and how much longer is this going to go on for um but not much longer about 40 minutes later my mum says now this part to me is fuzzy as it often is um my mum says that my tune changed and I all of a sudden went very quiet and very inward. From before that point, I was extremely vocal, much to the like um, dis the other people's distaste <laughs> that were in that room. Cambodians generally birth very quietly, very um, they're very conservative. Mm. So she said I went very quiet and very inward, and she said to me, Charlie, what's going on? And I ignored her. So then. 
she did what most mothers do. They use their your full name. It's like <laughs> Charlotte Louise. What is going on? <laughs> and she realized um, that I had blood on my hand. I had reached inside of my sarong that I was wearing and I had felt um, a baby's head crowning. So she called out to one of these nurses who was waiting that whole time to be called for that very reason. And all they came and they rushed and it was all chaotic and they had a wheelchair and they're asking me to get in the wheelchair and to sit down. But um, at that point I was feeling like pretty unsafe, like I didn't even want them to know that my baby was coming. They didn't feel like I trusted them enough to sort of let them know that, but my mum had, so I went along with it. They wheeled me into that same room that I had the procedure in earlier that same day and they wound the bed down and I tried to get me from the wheelchair into this bed and it's so awkward and, you know, uncomfortable and painful. And I lay down on that bed and then I feel this like, oh, this awful sensation and I look down between my legs that are raised up on um, stirrups and I see the one of those nurses with a pair of like scissors in her hand. It's like what? And then bang, out comes Kyan. He's born like just without a push, just gush. And they put him on my chest and I later learnt that they gave me an episiotomy and it's wow. just routine. Yeah, it's just routine. It's just part of what they do. Wow, um, they didn't even how they tell you. Trained. No, they didn't tell me. And he was already out, like he was ready to come out. My body was doing everything it needed to do. So it was, it was totally unnecessary but part of their process, part of their what they do. So he's born pretty easily. They put him up onto my onto my belly. I tried to move him to my chest, but his cord was really, really short and he couldn't reach. Um, so he stayed there for quite a while. He cried straight away. Um, yeah, I remember thinking, like, that he was really warm and hairy. <laughs> I didn't think that they could be so hairy. That was amusing to me. But then I needed to be fixed up quite a lot. Um because of this episiotomy and also because I had held on to him through that process of them getting me into the wheelchair and down the hall and into that delivery room and then onto that bed, I had been told to hold on that whole time. So that meant that there was like quite a lot of internal tearing. So I, they asked me if I wanted to hold on to him while I had that like tidying up and stitching up process done but I didn't feel like I could hold on to him safely so he was wrapped up in a blanket and then passed to my mum and my partner who had returned at some point while I was in the delivery room. Um, yeah and I got the stitches and I one of the nurses said to me oh he was born at 9.05 so there I was on that same bed looking at that same clock that I had done earlier and it was exactly to the minute 12 hours from that procedure at five past nine, which has always wow. really tripped me out a bit, yeah. Yeah, what are the um, chances? Yeah, I know, right, especially after her giving me that lecture about, you know, if it's going to happen, it will be 12 to 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually, despite how that now sounds like, you know, pretty traumatic and less than picturesque kind of birth, I actually felt like a superhero. I spent the next four months just in complete disbelief of my 
of my strength and my capability. I just wanted to tell everyone that I met about, you know, <laughs> how incredible I felt that I was for doing that. It wasn't until that sort of four-month um, <laughs> postpartum hormones change that I started to have a different sort of perspective on that birth and um, an insight into, like, why certain things had happened. And, and did you know, did you have much idea of what was kind of standard care in Australia and what, you know, how things would have been different? Well, I didn't really until about four days after his birth, one of my best friends from school who was studying to be a midwife, baby. She, um, she phoned me and I told her about my birth and I told her that I had been given an episiotomy and she was so shocked. Not only shocked, she was completely offended that that was something that they were still doing routinely. Um, and she sort of said to me, like, you know, we haven't done things like that in Australia since, like, oh, God, like, you know, it feels like the dark ages. We still, you know, there's still types of episiotomies that are given in a circumstance where it's it's deemed to be, like, completely necessary, but not just a routine. Um, so, yeah, that was the first sort of seed planted in my head that made me question some things. But that feeling of, like, feeling so invincible and so powerful sort of meant that I started to watch a lot of birth videos and became a real birth nerd and then after my birth learnt about the natural process of a birth and became really interested in that and in a sense, yeah, felt sort of empowered and healed through learning after that birth, it's almost like it had to happen in order for mm. me to to learn how it could really be. However, I always maintained that I would never, ever, ever have another baby. Oh, wow. I was pretty traumatised. My pregnancy was challenging and that birth was, like, super challenging. That And the recovery, the postpartum was, uh, it, yeah, that really kicked me down. I, I was under the impression that you'd have a baby and then that would be it. It would be all over. You wouldn't have to be pregnant anymore. But that it was a rude shock to me um, about how sort of like dismantled I would, I would feel uh, mo more physically than emotionally. Like I said, emotionally I felt like a superwoman. I felt on top of the world, invincible. But physically um, I was in a pretty rough, rough state lots of stitches. I had um, put my back out, but I didn't realise that I had. I thought it was just like aching from stitches. So it wasn't until around a week after birth that something just clicked back into place and I could walk again. But previous to that, I wasn't able to walk. So I was really, really grateful that I had my mum there to help me out and a village of, of women um, where I lived to cook meals and everyone took care of me. Mm. Um and did yeah, you, everyone was really loving. Much, were you able to have much time off work, sorry? Yes. I never went back. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but enough. the school did call me um, three days after after he was born and asked me when I would come back because I hadn't actually had that conversation with them. And, I, you know, 
being a, an Australian woman who spoke English as a first language, I was very valuable to them. So they were hoping that I would come back as soon as possible. Um, mm. But I never felt to go back. So I never went back to teaching English at school at least. Yeah. Um, and um, just yeah. sorry, just in the interest of time, we might sort of get started on Sophia's birth. But would you sure. be able to just take us, uh, take the listeners just through um, briefly, I, I suppose there's a big transition that happened between Kyan's birth and Sophia's mm. just in terms of life and where you're living and, and your partner. Would you, are you able to sort of um, briefly cover that? Sure, yeah. Um, so between Kyan's birth and Sophia's, about a year after his birth, the relationship dismantled and I became a single mum. I still maintained I would never have another baby. But as it happens, life goes on and I move to Australia and I find myself in the Numanbar Valley where I am now and I meet a beautiful person. And we still had no plans to have a baby at all, but it happened. And from the first birth to finding out that I was pregnant with Sophia, I had done a lot of soul searching, a lot of inner work. Um, could really, I could really see exactly why I had the birth that I did for my first. Also, I had broader perspective on the relationship and why it didn't work and my, the sort of stuff I had to work on myself. So here I am, how many years later? Five years later, and I find out I'm pregnant with Sophia um, and she's a total surprise, a delight now, mm. delightful surprise. But I was shell-shocked. And really scared, actually. Mm. Really scared or the, the the wounding or the stories that I thought that I had really worked on, which I had, there was a deeper layer of inner work that I needed to do around, you know, the fear of, like, of abandonment, the fear of, like, you know, having to find that strength to do it on my own again. And I actually wasn't super afraid of... Um, giving birth this time, given that I had become quite a birth nerd between my first birth and this pregnancy. Um, so I, I wasn't working on a fear of birth or the fear of, you know, or the pain and all the things that could come up with that. It was more the fear of my life changing shape so dramatically and my relationship changing shape so dramatically again. Um, mm. So I've, I've really felt... And I came to discover through the pregnancy with Sophia um, that pregnancy is much like a shamanic journey. It's an initiation and a rite of passage where I, if I chose to surrender to it, there were some really, really deep insights and learnings. I could delve into places and layers of myself that I hadn't ever gotten to before. I had touched on them in a medicine journey that I had done about a year before she was born um, where I felt I shed away a lot of layers and a lot of beliefs about myself and about this paradigm. But pregnancy was like um, just like that medicine journey but long and slow. <laughs> mm. I did a lot of purging, a lot, a lot of purging, um, and it wasn't until about the 20th week, so about the halfway point, that I actually felt excited 
and I felt like this is actually happening. I'm actually doing this. I'm going to have another baby. Um, before that, there was a lot of like, no, what is this? A lot of disbelief. Um, and I, I can relate that same feeling to um, the beginning of that medicine journey where I felt, felt myself falling under the power um, of the medicine and wanting to resist it and not surrender to it. Um, like, it, yeah, t- to resist it, be like, no, 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 not this. I- I'm not ready. I don't want to fall under this. I'm not ready to do this work. It felt a lot like that in the pregnancy, but rather than it be that 10 seconds, um, it was 20 weeks. Um, mm. Yeah. Beautiful. And, yeah, I guess um, going back a little earlier, had you, uh, I suppose you hadn't thought about another birth because you didn't plan on having another baby, but mm. once you found out at what point did you decide that you wanted to have a home birth or was that just a sort of non-negotiable given your last experience? Um, yeah, it was non-negotiable. And my partner, he, as I mentioned earlier, he has three sons and two of which were birthed at home. For, so for him it was like that's just the way he, you know, he his babies were born and I was on the same page, like, yeah, I want I want to have a home birth. So I didn't, yeah, I didn't really have to navigate that. It wasn't something that I, I came to um, feeling into. It was just like, no, that's how it's going to happen. Now that we found out that we are pregnant, this is actually happening. We were always ever going to have her at home. I couldn't tell you the exact point that I decided that if I ever had a baby, it would be at home. Um like I said, because <laughs> I didn't think I'd be pregnant ever again. But I guess it was probably in those years where I really got a lot of enjoyment out of listening to others' birth stories and watching birth videos and learning about um, physiological birth and the magic, the magic that it can be. And so, yeah, did you decide to go ahead with having a midwife or a doula or somebody attending the birth? And how did you, yeah, how did you connect with them and start your antenatal care? I decided um, to go down the route of a private private midwife. Um, I didn't start looking for a private midwife until I was around like 18 weeks pregnant because I, I was really struggling to digest the idea that I was pregnant and to get on board with that. My partner was on board long before I was, but, yeah, there was a lot of resisting. So it was about the 17, 18th week that I started to look for a private midwife, which I assumed was going to be a really easy process, and it turned out that it wasn't. Everywhere I was looking, I wasn't finding what I was looking for. Um, so the Numanbar Valley is like part of the Gold Coast, and I was aware that there were two um, biz- – I don't really want to call them businesses, but for lack of a better word, there were two businesses, one called My, My Choice Midwife or My First Midwife or something like this, um, and people had told me, you just call them up and they'll send you a private midwife. So I called them and they said, oh, sorry, the laws are changing in Queensland and we're not able to take on any women this year. Our last birth will be something like the mid of, of last year. So that was a dead end. Um, so then I looked in the in the northern um, rivers, which is sort of like pretty close over the border, Byron, sort of Mullumbimby area. I looked there and I found many more private midwives, but they weren't prepared to travel across the border to where I am. They felt it was too far and were 
would like me to negotiate and someone even suggested I hire out an Airbnb like once a month or something to have a, a um, prenatal visit and I just felt it was ludicrous. <laughs> so there was a point where I thought to myself, maybe I just won't even have a midwife. Um, maybe I'll just have a doula or something. But then a woman called Andilla through the grapevine, um, her contact details come to me. So I give her a call and she sounds really down to earth. She asks me to send her a brief email about my first birth or any other pregnancies I've ever had. Um, so I do that and we meet in Narang, which is a town or a suburb half, 35 minutes from where I live. And I just love her. She's just, she's totally Islander, family, big mama. I felt like very honored by her. And I told her about how my partner and I had this idea that we wanted to have a baby on the land. So not just a home birth, but a birth like outside under the open sky in a rock hot tub with a fire. And she was fully on board. She's like, look, I've never done that before. I've done lots of home births. I've worked as a, um, a midwife for 16 years. Uh, that sounds pretty cool. And I'm, I'm willing to support you to do that. So she became my midwife from around the halfway point, maybe a little earlier. And she was fantastic. She would come out to see me each time. And it was really casual. She'd bring like a bit of yummy food for me, a bit of breakfast. And just like my first pregnancy, my second pregnancy was really challenging, probably more so than the first one. I was sick constantly, um, had migraines every morning that I woke. But she was super supportive and um, super supportive of anything I wanted to. If I said to her, look, I don't want to take prenatal pills because they don't align with me and they make me feel gross and nauseous, she would come and back and be like, how about some nettle tea? How about alfalfa? And just empower me to to really take and do what aligned with me. If it doesn't feel right, it, it, I trust that it's not right. Let's find a different avenue. So she was, yeah, she was really supportive. Hmm. It sounds like you had a little bit of preparation to do for getting your birth space ready. Was that your partner's job? Yes, it was. <laughs> he came up with an idea to buy a spa shell. We found one on Gumtree for about $50 and we bought this spa shell and then he built another rock hot tub around it and plumbed it in this time, so plumbed it into the gas right by the cabin that he lives in on the land, which is next to the dam where you could hear all the frogs in the earlier part of the recording. Beautiful. And I think you sent me a photo of that. It looked absolutely amazing. So I have to share that on yes, social please. media anyone who's listening it was just so beautiful it was so 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 magic there's also a space for um for the midwife to be because I was very adamant that I wanted a birth where I didn't feel witnessed I didn't want to have someone like watching or supervising because I was I was completely whole in myself that I could absolutely do it I didn't have even like a tidbit of fear that something would go wrong I just um, yeah, liked the idea that someone was around, but I didn't want to be witnessed and watched. Beautiful. So maybe just heading into your birth, what were some early signs of your labour starting with Sophia? Um, early signs of labour were tricky because I was finding that for eight days previous to actual labour, I would begin to get contractions or surges around one o'clock in the afternoon and they were 
sporadic and they wouldn't amount to anything. So each night I would lay down in bed thinking I'm going to have a baby in my arms by the morning and I'd wake up and she wasn't here yet. So it was a little challenging that on that eighth day at one o'clock in the afternoon these surges started to happen and by that point I had learnt to just like kind of keep quiet about it because I had got overexcited and shared it with everyone every single day until that point. So it's around 4 o'clock in the afternoon. We're going to have a, a community dinner. So I'm preparing a couple of meals and it's been three hours and it feels like they're becoming a little bit more regular. But I didn't want to jinx myself so I'm not timing them at this point. Um, and those signs were sort of I had a lot of pressure down low. but Also, um, yeah, just some slight sort of cramping, tinging feelings. Uh, then we were supposed to have like a little check-in circle before the dinner at 5 o'clock, but I decided that I wanted to just stay home and really feel in to whether this was going to be labour or not, so I cancelled on the, on the check-in circle and said that I'd be there for the 6 o'clock dinner. So I turned up at 6 o'clock, and as it happened, the circle had run overtime, so I joined the circle, and by then I'm sort of sitting and I'm listening to other people share what's um, going on for them, and I'm starting to feel that, like, I think this is the real deal. I think that we're actually going to have a baby pretty soon. There was a couple of other people in the circle who were, they could see that every now and again I would drop inward and be more conscious of my breath. So they would give me, like, little cheeky sort of winks and grins because everyone in the community was on board. They knew that what the plan was, there was going to be a baby born on the land really soon. So we have dinner as a community and it's, it's really fun. There's probably around like a dozen, maybe 15 people there. There's a lot of action, a lot of love. We're sharing this beautiful meal and things really start to pick up. So I looked over to my partner and said, okay, I think it's time that we, we go back to the cabin now. So come back down to the cabin. I put my son to sleep and... My partner's so excited. He's like, so should I feel the hot tub? What should we do? We're going to have this baby. It's like, no, no, I think that I just want to feel into this. And by this time it's around 8.30 in the, in the night. So we both go to bed. He falls asleep in two seconds flat like he does every night. And I'm laying there in like an increasing amount of discomfort. But there's still like a good probably chunky sort of 15 minutes between these surges. But I, I really wanted to do it by myself, do this part by myself. So at some point I fall asleep and I wake up from a beautiful dream that two of the people who were living in the community at the time, myself, my partner and one other person, were at the Natural Bridge, which is a beautiful cave and waterfall about two minutes down the road for us, full of glowworms. And we're there in the middle of the forest and the water is like rushing. I can hear it. It's so loud. We could almost can't even he hear one another speak. It's natural and lush and there's birds and it's just coming on to sunset and I'm in labour. And then I wake up from this dream with the most intense surge that I actually got for my entire entire labor from that point. So 
I attribute it to the fact that I, I was just like woken in the middle of it. I didn't really have time to drop in and, you know, be in my breath to write it out that I was sort of like dropped in the deep end of it. So I'm woken from this dream and it's midnight. So I get out of bed and I start sort of swaying and moving around and I'm trying my best to time these surges, but it's, it's really increasingly challenging for me to do that. I felt like my phone was sort of this void and every time that I would look at it or pick it up, it was really stripping me from that experience of being inward with my labour. Um, but some part of me felt like it was necessary to know exactly how many minutes are passing in between these surges. Um, it's around 3 o'clock by this stage and I've been labouring alone through the night. At some point I felt like cornflakes. I don't know why. I got up and I had cornflakes and it was noisy, obnoxious, like crinkly bag in the night. My partner woke up and was like, cornflakes? I was like, yep, everything's fine. I was like, everything's fine. Go back to sleep. So I labour like this for a while inside and outside. And then I remember that a sister had given me an essential oil blend. I can remember a couple of things that were in it. There was some like jasmine and some clary sage in there and a couple of other things. And she had given it to me and told me to put it on the pressure points on my body to keep labour progressing. So I got this oil out and I tried to remember where the pressure points were and I was like, oh, I can't remember. And I went to pick up my phone to Google it and then I was like, actually, you know what, I'm turning my phone off. I don't want, I don't want the phone in this experience anymore. So I put it away and I decided to tune in with myself to where those pressure points were. And I don't know if I remembered all of them, but I remembered the ones that I felt I needed to. So I put this oil on and I start massaging myself and then within the next surge, things really pick up from about 10 minutes apart, 10, 15 minutes to three minutes apart consistently. So it's 3.30 now and I'm a bit confused because I feel so good. I feel like so on top of it. I feel really with it as well. And in my first birth or my first labour, I felt really out of my mind. Um, I attribute that to just being in a fear space, really tapped out of myself, really tapped out of my power. Whereas in this labour, I felt so in control, so on top of it and so good. I was sort of like, right, so the rule of thumb is five minutes apart, lasting for one minute at a time. If you're going to go to the hospital, you start making your way there. If you're going to have a midwife, you call her. But I felt like, is is it dramatic to call her? I mean, it's 3.30 in the morning. It's going to wake her up and I feel so great. But I decided, you know what, I'll just call her and check in. So I call her and I sort of give her that whole spiel about, oh, sorry to wake you up and I don't know if it's like really labour or not. They're happening every three minutes and she was like, girl, you're going to have a baby. I'm, I'm coming. Is there anything you want? <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, coconut water. <laughs> and some ice I don't know we wanted a bag of ice I can't remember why I think it was for my partner so she <laughs> said all right I'll come straight away she said go wake your man up so I jump into bed like you know a kid on Christmas jump on top of me and I was like guess what it's like what what I said we're gonna have a baby <laughs> so <laughs> I was so excited so he launched out of bed we were so excited. He started to feel the hot tub. And by this stage, um, the sun's starting to come up. 
it's around maybe um, five o'clock in the morning. It's a little blurry to me. And Endila arrives. She arrives. She asks me a few questions. She checks baby's heartbeat. Everything's beautiful and fine. And she sort of gives us the go-ahead to jump in the spa. Um, so my partner had set up this amazing space around the spa with crystals and crystal bowl. I had made a medicine drum in the first trimester of my pregnancy. So the medicine drum was there. He had the didge. And he sort of walked me to the spa and was like, okay, we'll do a little ceremony around like creating a like a protective sphere. We'll call in like guides, call in ancestors. It was super beautiful. So we did this little process. He smudged me, smudged around the area, and then we hopped into the water. So at this point when we're in the water, I feel like when I think back to my birth, this could be one of like the most one of the most beautiful parts where labor was still I was still able to dance between worlds so be really present and giggly and chatty and then also drop inwards before I'm sort of like you know on another planet and we had this time to really connect in with one another and that to me it felt very telepathic and I feel like if we hadn't done that if we hadn't sat in the water together, just eye to eye, that perhaps the labour wouldn't have been so much of a dance of the two of us bringing our baby to earth, but more like I'm giving birth and he's sort of assisting somehow by, you know, you know, bringing glasses of water when I need or like rubbing my back here and there. Instead it was like we were super in tune for the rest of that journey together and I attribute that to us just dropping in and connecting in that early stage in the water. I'm not sure how long we're in there for. It could be like an hour or two or something. I'm not really sure. Time was didn't feel appropriate to keep tabs on it. So, yeah, we're in the water. And then things started to slow down a little bit. So I felt like it was time for to get out of the water, have a little bit to eat, um, check in again with Andilla, think there's a, there's a vague memory of my partner like preparing some food in the kitchen and all of a sudden like me really feeling very heavy and a lot of pressure down low like I sort of get that waddle on and I can really feel things are happening and I'm leaning on his shoulders in the kitchen and I'm being encouraged to like go back to the water but I had a little bit of resistance to do that. I wanted to stay like on land for a little bit longer so I went out onto the deck and leaned up against the railing. And when I had visualized my birth throughout my pregnancy, this that visual kept coming up for me where I was leaning on the railing. There's a passion fruit vine that's growing all along it and I'm looking at the dam and I'm swaying and moaning and toning. It happened just identically in, <laughs> in my labor. Wow. Um, yeah. They were like really beautiful details of my labor that I was watching nature play, dance and sing all around me. Um, I just wouldn't have had that same experience had I been inside in four mm. walls. I really, yeah, could feel, I could almost feel like <clears throat> I could inhale the expansiveness of nature. So if it ever felt like, oh, this is intense, I can't do this, I just look up to the sky or look up to all of the 
the mountains around me and in inhaled them deeply and I felt like it filled me with the power to just keep going through that process. Um, so I'm not sure what I would have done had I been inside. All of a sudden I feel like warm and wet down below and I look at my inner thighs and I can see like little white specks of, I guess, vernix or something. And it's feeling like kind of gloopy. So like, all right, it could be time now. And in that moment I go to to vomit, to purge, and I just felt like myself open so much more in that moment. I did that a couple of times over the railing and then my partner and midwife guide me back to the water and we jump in, the both of us together, and I remember looking at all of the all of the vernix and stuff floating to the through the water to the surface and it looked like a galaxy with all these little stars and we were sort of like lifting it up and talking about how magic it was and then yep surge comes and everyone else is on board everyone else is like that's it we're having a baby she's coming but for me I'm really struggling to even believe that there's a baby on their way because I was still feeling so cool, so calm, so level-headed about everything and I was waiting for that moment where I felt like, you know, totally (laughs) dismantled Um, and it just wasn't happening. So I just couldn't get on board with the fact that there was a baby so close. It's like, no, no, I should feel like halfway to death, right? But it wasn't happening. I was feeling so good. Um, By this stage, it's around 9 o'clock in the morning and the sun is becoming pretty intense because this is December, Um, so right in summertime. So my partner gets out and he sets up a a gazebo over the top of the spa Um, so we can still see out into the the dam, we can still see like the frogs and the reeds and all the water, but the sun is just not beating down on us at that point. So he hops back into the spa and he's feeling with feeling with his hands he can feel that she's on her way and he's telling me like babe she's you know she's only this far away and pointing to his to his fingers and I was like no 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 it's not it's not real it's it's not real (laughs) like it is and surges are coming progress is being made but I'm the only one who doesn't seem to be on board with the idea that there's actually you know going to be a baby arriving soon and yeah he's He's feeling, and again, he's like, okay, she's this close now. And I'm like, no, 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 this is not happening. He's like, all right, well, you you feel, and you tell me what you're feeling. So I feel inside myself, and I can feel something, but I'm in such denial that I'm like, no, that's a part of, that's a part of me. <laughs> that's not a baby. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, what, what do you mean? Like, you can't feel that? I was like, I can, but it's, you know, it's squishy, and it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like a baby. It's definitely a part of me. And well, then my sort of, like, the skin kind of wrinkles up on their head, so it, it does feel – I had a little feel during Alice's labor. It does feel quite squishy and like yeah. not like a head. Not like a head, right? And also I, my hind borders had broken when I was um, sick in transition before I got into the water, but the fore waters hadn't broken, so she still had an intact sac around her head. So that's what I was feeling. And, yeah, mm. like you said, it feels squishy and unlike unlike a head. Um, so we start talking about the fact that it could be her sack and my midwife's like, oh, yeah, I've birthed, um, been there for the birth of a couple of babies that were born in their sack and 
I'm sort of sharing about how someone had told me that the status of being a Dalai Lama meant that, you know, you had to be born in Kyle, like in your complete and um, uninterrupted sack. And we were like, oh, imagine if that happened and then bang, my water breaks. And in that <laughs> moment I went from being like, I'm not really having a baby to like, oh, my gosh, this is happening. Wow. And I, I need to have this baby right now. Um, and my son came back down the hill from the, the house where he was playing and I had said throughout my whole pregnancy that I really didn't want to be witness, so I only wanted it to be my partner and the midwife if I chose to call her on the day and nobody else. So I asked him if he could get me a glass of water and that was sort of my way of like testing whether he was going to be there in support or if he was going to have this sort of like, you know, needy energy that I wouldn't be able to to fulfill and that would become like, you know, a disruption to that process. But instead he raced off, he got me a glass of water and he set it down on one of the rocks, the hot tub, and he sort of mentioned to me a couple of times and reminded me to, to drink it. So he was there just to, to witness. I didn't feel like there was any sort of vacuum of energy from him. And he's feeling her head and she's so close and he's like there in total support kissing me all over, stroking me, and I'm bearing down. Part of it felt like I was really putting a lot of energy into bearing down, but um, it was mostly my body just pushing this baby out on its own. Mm -hmm. um, so she does that, you know, sneaky little thing that babies do sometimes where they get so close and then they suck right back up. <laughs> and I remember saying, no, 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 don't do that to me. Mm -hmm. um, but it was it was pretty smooth. Probably from the moment that water broke, it was around uh, less, definitely less than half an hour. Let's say like 15, 20 minutes from that moment until she's right there. She's right there. Um, the top part of her forehead's out. Her eyelids and the tops of her ears are out. And my partner's like, oh, her little ears. And at some point there was like a part of me that just clenched. So I felt so loose and so open. I was making a lot of sound, like deep guttural sort of toning and I could feel myself opening. And then I don't know what triggered that feeling. I don't think it was a thought. I don't, I don't have a memory of a thought, but something made me just like clench and tighten. And as I did that, she kicked me and I felt it like up in the top of my abdomen. And I, at this point, I'm on my hands and knees in the water and my partner's behind me. And I saw like, ow, ow, like, is that you? Asking my partner <laughs> if it was him. And he's like, no, no, that's, it's not me. And I wasn't sure what was happening until a third time she kicks me. And I was like, oh, she's kicking me. And my, my midwife, this was the only sort of guiding or co not even coaching, the only sort of guiding that she did for that whole process and she was like she's saying mama open up and let me come out because I had just sort of like clenched her <laughs> right you know right on her forehead so as soon mm. as I did that I put like conscious energy into like oh yeah I am doing that I am like you know clenching and tightening out she comes um, and my partner receives her in the water and he pulls her up and she's like crying and screaming straight away and I'm still on my hands and knees. And for me, it feels like an absolute eternity until I turn around to meet her. But 
as it happens, when I rewatch <clears throat> the recording of it, we have a little like three minute snippet of the birth. Um, I turn around right away, like within the first 10 seconds, but time was still so um, abstract, still so infinite that it felt like forever and ever until I turned around. So mm. sort of thread my leg over her cord and my partner's like holding her against his chest. You can see a little face. She's all purple. And um, I start saying, oh, my baby, my baby, my baby, which is really profound because in that medicine journey that I had that year before that I mentioned, as I came out of the um, of the medicine, I was saying exactly that in the same sort of way, like, my baby, my baby, my baby. So he passes her to me and, yeah, she's perfect. And it, I just can't even believe that it all went exactly how I envisioned. Like it couldn't be more perfect. It couldn't be more dreamy. It just, yeah, it felt, <laughs> it felt just like a, a fairy tale. And mm. it was. Oh, so beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Mm, my pleasure. <laughs> and did you stay in the water to deliver the placenta after that? No, no, I didn't. I um, I sort of had a rough plan or a rough idea that I would birth the placenta out of the water, but I wasn't attached to that. But after about five minutes, I started to feel a bit cold and uncomfortable in the water and um, just had this feeling like I need to get out immediately. Like, oh, I need to get out. I want to get out of the water. So <laughs> the minute that we stood up to do that, it was all of a sudden like we were human again. We were like awkward and naked and slippery and baby's still attached by a cord and we have to sort of like duck under this um what the gazebo that my partner had propped over the spa it was all just like a bit awkward as we walk across the lawn <laughs> back inside to dry off um but my midwife had prepared this really comfy space across the couch and I laid down and probably within 15 minutes I felt those after pains. Sophia had already found the breast and she'd latched and yeah, my placenta was birthed with no no trouble with ease and grace. Um, yeah, on land at that point. Mm, beautiful. And did your midwife stay long to sort of keep an eye on you guys or did you did she head off after that? She stayed for a couple of hours. So Sophia was born at ten forty five in the morning. And I think Andilla left at around um, 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So she stayed a little while. We had decided to leave Sophia attached to her placenta for a few hours until we felt like the cord was um, like white and it had collapsed on itself. So she stayed for that process where um, my partner cut the cord, severed the cord. And she went to, um, she went to give me a shower at one point. Once Sophia was detached from placenta, Daddy had a big cuddle with her and my midwife's like, oh, come on, let's go and have a shower now. But <laughs> I didn't want to because I still had a bit of blood on me and it sort of represented this really like primal, very powerful feeling that I felt about myself. Like I wasn't ready to wash that experience away. I wasn't ready to wash all of those like birth smells and colours away. Actually mm -hmm. wanted to wear them. <laughs> mm -hmm. I wanted to wear them for as long as possible. So yeah, I declined that offer. 
to have a shower. That's, yeah, I remember saying to a friend a couple of days later, um, sort of joking with her where <laughs> I'd said, like, I never want to wash it away. Like, I want to wear it forever. Wow, sounds like such an amazing turnaround after after your first birth. I'm curious to know how you're feeling about the possibility of another birth or if this is definitely the final birthing experience for you. Yeah, this is that was the final birthing experience for me. That's beautiful. Mm. It was, I couldn't have asked for anything more. It was just so magic. Yeah, so mm. for me it's like she's the final, the final one. Yeah. My little girl. <laughs> yeah, and for your partner after four boys or well, yes. he's got three and you've got one. <laughs> A little girl yes. to, yeah, to be a father of a daughter. Yeah, that's pretty special. <laughs> it's so special. Lovely. Well, we've wrapped things up, but thank you so much for sharing and um, so so honestly and beautifully. And, yeah, I'm really excited to share some pictures of what sounds like an absolutely amazing birth space and amazing birth. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for allowing me to share. Thank you so much for listening to Charlotte's story today. I hope you enjoyed hearing it as much as I did. If you'd like to see some photos of her beautiful birth space, you can just jump over onto my Instagram where I've shared a couple of photos there. So that is at keepbirthwild.podcast. And I look forward to talking to you again next week.